This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This is the film podcast where we see something new in cinemas and connect it to older movies that you may or may not have heard of. Hopefully you hear some or hear about some that you don't know anything about. My name is Karsten. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And I'm Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer for the Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. Today, we are talking about revenge thrillers having having gone to see Death Wish with Bruce Willis. So uh, prepare yourselves, folks. There's going to be some gunplay. Lock and load. The F-bombing New York Times bestsellers, Thug Kitchen. Gwyneth Paltrow's two-time co-author, Julia Tertian the polite and proper Great British Bake Off's food stylist. What do they all have in common? They're all at the intersection of culinary arts and pop culture. And they've all been guests on The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. If you really want to connect with someone, just write them a letter. It was a dark and stormy night. The only light came from a lantern swinging from the gatepost. A pathway to where? What's your pathway? What's in your brown paper bag? I think for me, it's more about a feeling. Is that when I'm writing about food, I'm really writing about people. It was a springboard to learn about culture, history, and of course, health. As a story, I almost want there to be some internal conflict, even if it is just eggs or French toast. I am the architect of my own health. I decide what direction I go in. I build its foundation with every thought I think and with what I eat. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. And today we are looking at movies with a theme of revenge, vengeance, getting even, settling scores, and uh, coming out on top. And uh, the reason we're doing that is because there's a new film in theaters that feels very familiar, and that's because it's a remake of an old film from 40 years ago, over 40 years ago now, 45 years ago, uh, and that is Death Wish. Uh, director Eli Roth uh, has uh, taken the old Charles Bronson uh, revenge thriller from the 70s, which was a massive hit for Paramount Pictures, and uh, has retooled it with Bruce Willis uh, using a script uh, initially started by Joe Carnahan, based originally, as was the um, the original uh, Charles Bronson film, on a novel by Brian Garfield, which... Uh, from all reports, has a tone very dissimilar to both uh, movies that were based on it. So, uh, and uh, with very much a different intent than uh, the films that came about. Uh, as you probably know, Death Wish is kind of a propaganda film for vigilante justice and taking the law into your own hands. There may be a case that there might have been a more satiric edge to the initial one. It's hard to tell with uh, with Michael Winner films, the director of the original, and we'll talk about that more later. But with uh, the Eli Roth film, uh, he's a filmmaker who's about as subtle as a flying mallet, and <laughs> or a flying bullet in this case. And there are lots of them, as uh, Bruce Willis plays a uh, quiet family man who's a uh, emergency room surgeon whose uh, life is turned upside down when some thugs break into his house and... Uh, initially just to rob it, but um, they end up uh, killing his wife and uh, leaving his daughter in a coma. And um, it's actually a little less brutal than the original film. That uh, surprised me too, which, actually. Which is, uh, 
you know, considering it's Eli Roth and everything. Um, yeah, I figured he'd go. Maybe he felt like, oh, this is an opportunity to make like more mainstream film or something. I don't know. I, uh, it's it was I, I mentioned this in my in my blog. It's hard to imagine a film more out of touch with the zeitgeist uh, than this one right now. I mean, I guess if you are a right wing, if you do have some right wing tendencies, or you know, come from a certain red state in the United States, you might think, oh, this is the kind of movie I've been waiting for. But it feels really out of touch. And uh, I read somewhere that it was originally supposed to be released in November, but then when the uh, shootings in Las Vegas happened, they tried to reschedule it and release it in March. And of course now since then we've had shootings in florida so the you know they just can't win and uh, and that's nor should they nor should they i mean <laughs> let's face it i grew up with these kinds of movies and so i have an affection for the genre while still recognizing that politically i I, you know, it's 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 pretty problematic. Uh, you know, if yes. if you do tend to the center or to the left, this is stuff. This these are films that that have messages that I don't agree with. But that said, I can still appreciate them as a piece of cinema. Um, I wish I liked this film better. I, I actually do have some time for Eli Roth and the things he does, but uh, but I I felt like. In many ways, this new remake was more generic and a lot less interesting than the original Michael Winter film, which we also watched. Yeah, the the, the point of this film, of course, is that Bruce Willis uh, could not get to the end of this movie without being heavily armed and uh, kind of blasts his way through the Chicago underground. It's, they moved the because New York has all been prettified and gentrified and Manhattanized. They can't really set it there anymore because it's, it's no one would buy it. So they, they moved it to Chicago because apparently it's still I don't know if it's the murder cap murder capital of uh, of the United States, but it's you know I guess people still have an image of it as being a fairly tough town, which they kind of amp up to the max here. And there are a lot. They definitely have a lot of murders in Chicago, but it's a much more complex story than this film would portray. Oh, for sure. Uh, and uh, so so Bruce Willis uh, happens to just happens upon a Glock uh, that falls out of. Uh, the pocket of a perp who uh, has been brought to the emergency room and he puts it aside for his own use um, as he starts to formulate his plan of revenge on the uh, the thugs who uh, did the home invasion and uh, destroyed his family. So, uh, it, you know, they're, they're, everybody's pretty one-dimensional in this film for the most part. The characterizations are not what you would call rich. Um, you know, we, we do have Vincent D'Onofrio, who's probably the most interesting character in the movie. He's He's kind of like... Uh, he plays uh, Dr. Kersey, who, uh, Willis's character. He plays his sort of down-at-his-heels brother who's always asking for some some money until he gets his, his next job or whatever. And uh, I, I don't know if they were trying to set him up as a red herring as maybe potentially – Responsible for you know what I didn't I didn't really feel like his character really need even needed to be there. No, you cut well, him out. In the end, and he doesn't, doesn't affect really do the, doesn't affect the plot whatsoever. I mean, I like Vincent D'Onofrio. I yeah, think he's too. a really quality actor. But what he's doing in this, I can't tell you. It's a it's a mystery. Yeah, I, I thought maybe they were setting him up like, oh well, maybe he you know. But but we see right off the bat that the crooks um, get the address. Get you know they know that that uh, the Kersey family is from a well-to-do part of uh, Chicago because uh, the the valet at this fancy restaurant takes a picture of their GPS uh, home location and 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 so that kind of kills any momentum for turning the brother into a into a potential suspect and mm-hmm. uh, I guess he does help throw the police off his brother's scent late in the film but it, again you know that not really 
the sort of thing you would need Vincent D'Onofrio no. for. No, it feels like there might have been more of a, of a subplot with him that they cut out. Uh, yeah, and that's funny you mentioned about the uh, the GPS. This is a film that hates technology and it, it takes every opportunity to have <laughs> yes. older white guys grumble about how the internet is a bad thing. And, uh, and you know, it's it really is, it's con- so conservative and stick in the mud in its perspective that, uh, yeah, I just, I mean, sometimes I wondered whether or not it was Roth was trying to be a bit satirical, but you know what? I don't think that's his vibe. I don't think he's got a satiric bone in his body. Uh, you know, there's that moment where there is these, uh, these gun, these ads for a sporting goods store called Jolly Roger, oh, <laughs> you know, which is supposed to be kind of outrageous. And, uh, that's where the Bruce Willis's Paul Kersey wanders in to, to inquire about a weapon. Uh, and yeah, and there may be a few chuckles at that, but really, like, I don't, I really don't know. I, I, uh, I felt like at its best, this is a sort of a middle mid range action movie, but at its worst is kind of NRA propaganda. And, uh, I guess I could not, I couldn't really enjoy it. I, I, there were moments where I was like, okay, like there's this, there's actually some pretty cool aerial footage of Chicago. It looks Looks, I kind of enjoyed that. I enjoyed the um, one thing they've updated from the original film is that in the original film there were uh, discussions of vigilantism through magazines that uh, Paul Kersey was reading, the Charles Bronson character. But now we've got, of course, shock jock morning radio and yes. uh, that They're kind of conversation. Offering happened. endless commentary. We have the man cow who I, who I know about because he was on an episode of, uh, of Anthony Bourdain's, one of his shows. Oh, there you go. They went out and ate some giant sandwich somewhere. So it's like, I know, where do I know that guy from? Oh, right. From, from that show. But yeah. Um, and you mentioned something funny, which is that the use of ACDC in the film oh, geez, seemed yes. kind of ironic because of course, ACDC coming from Australia, which has pretty strict gun control laws, which seem to work, yes. you know? I don't know if that's something anyone has really thought of, but uh, <laughs> it occurred to you, and I appreciate that. Yeah, there, there was, uh, back in the early 90s, there was one deadly mass shooting in Tasmania, and they immediately put uh, gun control legislation into effect uh, right away, and uh, those kind of incidents have been very few and far between in Australia, where and people do hunt there. It's not. It's not like you can't get a gun or whatever down there. But but by kind of limiting the kind of guns that people can have and that sort of thing, it's it's sort of been a model of why this kind of legislation works. But I, I guess maybe the the culture hadn't been in, ingrained uh, in the populace to the extent that it has been in the, in the United States. So you know, the, I guess that, that would be the counter argument. I guess sure. about why it was so effective. But even so, <laughs> the fact that. Uh, that uh, you might even think of that uh, as the credits roll in this version of Death Wish is just hilarious to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so we've got this new Death Wish in cinemas. I, it's it's uh, sort of surprised to see it given the timing uh, and the sort of political climate. But hey, you know, uh, there it is. And a bit, it, of course, it, it prompted me to go back and watch, or prompted us, I should say, to go back and watch the original. And I found that. The original Death Wish with Charles Bronson, which I had very vague recollections of, having seen it, it and the sequel, uh, Death Wish Two, when I was a kid, uh, I found it to be a much better directed film than I expected. Winner has uh, a real style in the way he shoots New York. He uses actual locations. Of course, New York in the early 70s has a real flavor, which comes across in the film. Uh, we saw a really a good version of a copy of it. Um, yeah, the Blu-ray of this actually looks pretty astounding. looks good. And there's a, there's a wonderful sort of uh, funky soundtrack to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, the politics are a little weird. Uh, Kersey in, in the Bronson version is an architect. When his wife is killed, he goes out to Tucson and becomes chummy with uh, 
with uh, a cowboy, sort of a, a very sort of cliche cowboy character played by uh, Michael Sarazen, who gives him a weapon as a gift. And then, of course, uh, he becomes this urban avenger on the streets. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you know, he never found out who it was who who killed his... Um, I mean, Stuart Margolin, I think. Oh, sorry. Did I say... Uh, sorry, Stuart Margolin. That's who I meant, yes. <laughs> um, like Michael Sarazen. It was, no. <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm confusing my, my character actors here. But anyway, yeah, and, uh, and it, it is... Yeah, he never found out that it was actually... Um, uh, Jeff Goldblum was one of the uh, the thugs, freak number one, who was uh, <laughs> involved in that home invasion. But uh, but yeah, it's it's something to see uh, that uh, that the film is better than I expected. Yeah, I mean, it does have that period charm. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's a very seventies film, uh, and it's it's you know again, it's Michael Winner. It's not it's not very subtle either, but it it seems to have some some more character to it, and and. I mean, Bronson is, uh, you know, he's as stony as they come as far as actors go. But I, I don't think he's leaden necessarily. I mean, no, he, he, uh, he, he does lend some heft to the character. I mean, his very presence, uh, you know, carries this weight with it. And even, even though he would be the first one not to describe his acting as, as very, uh, say, expressive, uh, you know, he. He was a firm believer in you know showing up on time and not giving anybody any attitude and yeah. doing what was asked. And Winner was a director that he worked really well with. Uh, the Stone Killer uh, film, a police uh, sort of organized crime thing they worked on together before this, I think, was um, was quite a good film. And and uh, you know some other projects they worked on together were quite good. Winner, uh, you know, also has made some terrible, terrible films. But for some reason, he and Bronson were fairly simpatico. And and um, and it's you know it, it's. I think I think Winner it will go out of his way to make a film entertaining. It may not necessarily be the right kind of artistic choices, but he'll he definitely wants you to leave having seen something that you're not going to forget anytime yes. soon. Yeah, I would go along with that. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, and it's a uh, it, it's it's something to see. I, uh, I I really quite enjoyed going back to it, and I, I agree. Uh, Bronson, of course, he came to this with uh, with this whole. Uh, history of being a western actor in in a number of films where uh he was a tough guy and and so he brings that to this and the sort of imposing the western values the outlaw values on this vigilante film i think help make it work in terms of thematic you know uh intent uh and i yeah i enjoyed it and then it was apparently a big hit of course it came out in 1974 after dirty harry so it's certainly in that kind of like that's got that kind of vibe um and it follows other films revenge thrillers you know the the point blanks and the get carters of the world uh which i think are of another level than this i mean they are i think considered the great films in this genre certainly probably the best known films uh but there were a lot of them in the late 60s early 70s but they didn't get to a sequel to death wish until 1982 and then when we catch up with uh, paul kersey he's moved to los angeles with his daughter who i think is played by a different actress yes uh and uh, you know and then basically the same thing happens another terrible thing happens he's He's he gets another another group of thugs invades his home. This time his daughter is killed, and he you know has to have vengeance. Now this time he was present for the invasion, the home invasion, so he knows what these guys look like. So he has someone particular to hunt, uh, and that was something to me, including Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> yes. It's like every time one of these movies comes out, it feels like there is a uh, uh, you know a star is born in in the uh, supporting cast. Yeah, the, the the thing, the one thing about Winner is he seems to revel in the sexual violence a little 
too much. Yeah, uh, I'd go along with and that. That's, and that's what makes it, these films seem so nasty. Like I, I think, you know, Roth does up the, the gore qu- quotient in his version. I mean, the, the scene in the garage, I think, will stick. Yeah. If you do see the Bruce Willis death wish, there's a scene in a garage which will probably stick with you for a while. Uh, for for a couple of different reasons, but 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 Winner had uh, and you know apparently he was a bit of a sadist uh, to people who weren't Charles Bronson. Uh, Charles Bronson he wasn't going to mess with, but other people that have worked with him don't have very pleasant memories from what I've read, and um, you know and 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 he liked to take uh, take that aspect of the films probably you know a few steps further than would make people comfortable. But I guess that's that was his way of making his film memorable, I suppose. Uh, not not recommended for, for other filmmakers. Yeah, seriously. Uh, and, and you know, and the same same thing happens with Death Wish too. Um, and then uh, you know, unlike, but of course, in the original Death Wish, he doesn't. He just goes after criminals in general. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he just decides to wage a one-man war against crime. Uh, I don't even think we see the the hoods that that uh, attacked his wife and daughter again. No, I after don't think their we do. Initial assault. Um, you know, but in in, in Death Wish Two, uh, it's it's a little more focused. You mm-hmm. know, he, he's he's he, yeah, he's seen them. He sort of knows what to look for. Yeah. He get, he sort of dresses down. He goes and gets a a really a flea bag hotel in in Skid Row on L.A. and he wears this like you know this wool cap and he tries to look like he's belongs there and he's actually I mean this is the thing that Bronson is every inch a movie star and he, even when he says nothing he just walks around his, he's so relaxed in front of the camera <laughs> yes. that he actually is pretty intimidating I mean th- at this point he's in his like 60s when he made the sequel and uh, you know he's not a really big guy but he does have something that uh, I think delivers and and uh, yeah that was one thing I like it was I I would never recommend it necessarily but uh, you know the second one also the return of Vincent Gardenia as the cop he's got <laughs> a just... nice presence of the guy who's constantly <laughs> sick he's constantly sneezing or yes. blowing his nose or something and he shows up again and then the second film is also notable because there's the soundtrack by Jimmy Page who came back for the third film or actually I gathered the third film was made in such a low budget that they, they reused some, some of the, the cues, sound- yeah. the soundtrack uh, and I don't know if I really it's just odd it feels it seems very 80s the Jimmy Page soundtrack oh yeah yeah it doesn't sound like classic Zeppelin or anything like yeah that. no not at all I, I you know I've I've heard from people who bought the soundtrack as Zeppelin fans, only to be very, very disappointed. Yeah. yeah. So what did you make of Death Wish 3 from 1985, also Michael Winner directed? Well, you know, it's funny because it's it's so over the top and so crazy. I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, it's, you're getting the kind of class of 1984 territory, um, which is, if you've never seen it, is a sort of not quite post-apocalyptic, thing but it was shot in Toronto and with a bunch of crazy high school students yeah. wreaking havoc and there's lots of shots of the Sam the Record Man <laughs> uh, <laughs> facade just to let you know where it was shot um, you know it kind of verges into that territory where it's and then you know I'm halfway through the film and I realize that they're not even in America the whole thing was shot in, in England yeah in Brixton yeah uh, which accounts for the kind of the bombed outlook which um you know, still existed in places like the Bronx or what have you. But I guess to save a few bucks and maybe not have to shoot in the Bronx, they shot it in uh, inner city London. Um, and that's why so many of the cast members are heavily uh, ADR'd and right. overdubbed. Yeah. And so much. Like, I mean, uh, you know, Alex Winter, here's our, and the, here's our star number three, uh, Alex Winter uh, from Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure shows up as one of the, one of the gang members. Um, and in fact, uh, Bronson, uh, had a, had some uh, didn't want to like punch him out because he said it'd be like hitting it like a 
teenage, like he was too cute or something. Like that. He's, <laughs> I don't, I can't hit a pretty boy uh-huh. kind of thing. Um, but uh, it, in this case, it just it just becomes full fledged urban warfare, like with with actual like, you know, the, the machine like not just machine guns, but like anti tank guns and grenade launchers. Yeah. And, uh, it, any pretense at any kind of realism just goes right out the window. Yeah, this was the era of, of Rambo, and that clearly is a big influence on this. Oh yeah, this this movie where where Paul Kersey is now he's come to New York to visit a buddy of his who lives in sort of tenement housing. The buddy is killed right from the start, <laughs> mere and seconds the, before he gets, he gets there. there. So Kersey is arrested for the for the murder apparently, but the cop who arrests them basically says, "Look, I know who you are. You're." Actually, is a vigilante who left town years ago. I'm just going to give you free reign because it's it's a war field out, it's war war zone out there, and you should just go and do what you need to do. And so that's all he needs. And he goes out, and then he makes friends with all the mostly immigrant community within this one building. Uh, and yeah, and it's surrounded by yeah, basically class of 1984 or the uh, the mutants uh, of the the mutants from Mad Max. I mean, these are yeah, are and just, the warriors and the that's warriors, yeah, big influence, just completely like terrible, terrible punks with absolutely, you know, they're all deserved to die. At least that's what the movie thinks. And yeah, they'll the, all get their chance. The leader's got the reverse mohawk with the shaved stripe down the middle of his head. And yeah. they all have painted faces, which is yeah. like, they all, you know, they all have this like, distinguishing kind of gang colors painted on their foreheads, which is like, I guess... A badge of pride, but it kind of makes yes. you, it makes it kind of obvious. Yeah, <laughs> real target. Seems, oh, seems like a real guys. dumb move. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then uh, Deborah Raffin plays this uh, this sort of uh, lawyer attorney who takes a shine to uh, <laughs> Charles Bronson, like from the middle of the movie, and starts basically takes a cab right up to him, find him to ask him out after one exchange at the police station. And it just, I'm like, is that like not only is she half his age, clearly, <laughs> but what is going on? Like I just didn't quite buy that. And of course, any slightly attractive woman in this is uh, is is likely going to be you know uh, brutalized. I mean, this is what these movies unfortunately do. Yeah, uh, at least Jill Ireland had the sense to get away from them. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> in the Death Wish movie. too. It's like but, uh, trouble. Yeah, and the, and, and the and the third one also stars for Star Trek fans, uh, Marina Sirtis, uh, who played Cons- Counselor Troy, has a very small role in this film. Of course, she's you know. Uh, well, th- not g- bad things happen to her yes. too, uh, but she gets yeah, brutalized. Yeah, it's awful. I mean, and that when re- when you really think about it, I mean, <sighs> I mean, I don't know if we need to necessarily parse all the political, you know, implications of these kinds of movies. But I mean, my feeling is that, and this was actually there was an article about this that that the sort of gun rights and the gun lobby is basically the supporting of white guys to feel you know self justified. Uh, over other groups, and of course, in these ones, the good guys—they have a lot of guns. But uh, but naturally, women are the ones there. They're the ones who get hurt, and so that so our hero has something to avenge. And uh, yeah, it's pretty appalling when you think about think about it that way. Yeah, because they don't like the idea of women having guns, right? Because then they might actually be able to fight back against, say, abusive partners, and mm-hmm. and uh, and you know, yeah, there's definitely a macho trip happening in all of these films uh, it, it's it's a fantasy really yeah. and uh, you know that that is the disturbing takeaway from these films I mean I think at least with Death Wish 3 it's so over the top that you know you can't see it as anything but fantasy yeah but, it's a cartoon um, you know Death, Death Wish the, the first one is certainly grounded in some sort of reality even though they kind of amp up the the gritty terror of New York City, where there's a mugger in every shadow, and yeah, and and you know, and a purse snatcher around every corner. Um, 
which, uh, you know, I, you know, maybe there was a certain truth to it in the early 70s, but uh, the, the level of paranoia that these films are kind of playing on is, 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 is certainly kind of ridiculous. It is. It is. You know, occasionally you see, like, locals, like, taking matters into their own hands and fighting back against the thugs, which is, you know, that's something, I suppose. Uh, you know, groups, communities getting together and kids. So there's one scene where, where Charles Bronson, like, smashes some guy and then looks over and the kid gives him a big thumbs up. I'm like, wow. This, <laughs> this oh, yeah. is a crazy story. Uh, and, and for anyone who happens to be listening, uh, there is a fourth and a fifth, which we didn't get to. But if you want to... If if you really want to commit, there is Death Wish, <laughs> the Crackdown, and then Death Wish Five: Faces of Death from like the mid '90s when Bronson must have been like what in his mid '70s. I'd at that say point? by that point, uh, I, I do remember when that came out, and, and uh, I remember Death Wish Four being a big. I used to, you know, when I worked in a, a home theater store, the laser disc of Death Wish Four was a big renter, as I recall. Uh, <laughs> five, especially with the, the fact that death is a bookend. It's like the first and last word in the title of Death Wish 5, Face of Death, or whatever it's called. It's like, <laughs> they just didn't care by that point. Yeah, it's it feels obvious. like it. So, Stephen, thinking about revenge dramas, revenge thrillers, there are a number that probably pop into people's minds that have had a lot of success over the years. You know, there's a lot of westerns, there's a lot of uh, urban thrillers, uh, but, well, sure, it's uh, as old as the Bible. There you go. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, one, one of the ones I remember from when I was a kid was The Count of Monte Cristo, a very much a period drama adventure. Uh, now, I've never seen the 1934 version. I gather it's, uh, it is available to be seen, but I wasn't able to track it down. Um, and, but I have seen the 2002 version uh, directed by Kevin Reynolds. Uh, that That's has right. that Jim has, Caviezel, yeah, Jim Caviezel and, and, uh, and Guy, uh, Guy, Guy Pierce. Pierce, yeah, and they are. It's actually a lot of fun. That's probably my favorite uh, in terms of quality. I think it does. A, I mean, uh, Richard Harris is in it. It's a it's a pretty great version of the the Dumas story about yeah. this this guy who's betrayed by his friends and sent to a you know forgot like a rock uh, somewhere where he basically li- you know is, is solitary confinement and finds a way to escape, find treasure, and then. In act, and the third act is basically him finding, getting his revenge on his his old friends. Uh, now, the version that I rewatched was from 1975. I think originally made for TV. It's yeah. a little hard to tell, uh, but you know, there's a lot of pauses for that would likely be filled with advertising uh, in terms of the way it's shot. But that's the one with Richard Chamberlain. That's the one I remember when I was a kid, and it's. I mean, it's very, it's very campy and quite a little bit cheesy and sort of crappy. I mean, it's not a great film mighty stretch, but but in terms of just a good time, like a good Saturday morning watch, I and that happens to be when I watched it. Uh, it was fun. I uh, I had a good time. Um, you know, Tony Curtis is one of the the villains, and Louis Jordan is in it, um, and uh, it's a great cast. Uh, uh, Trevor Howard uh, and uh, you know Richard Chamberlain uh, he p- starred in so many movies that I remember from when I was a kid I actually have a quite soft spot for him um, and uh, Kate Nelligan Canadian Kate Nelligan plays Mercedes the, uh, the the love interest of the film which leads me to think that it might be one of those international co-productions probably so it's like so CTV had a hand in it and the BBC and, yeah. and maybe an American channel as well um I, I I have vague memories of seeing this as a kid, like around the time that I, I like remember TV promos and stuff sure. for it, and you know, and at that point, I don't know that Richard Chamberlain had done. I mean, he had been Doctor Kildare on TV, but he'd right. got sort of gone on to movies, so he was kind of going back into TV because he also did Shogun not too long, like right, a couple sure. years after this, uh, and that was kind of like 
with Shogun and Roots, the miniseries was kind of born. So, mm-hmm. and right. uh, and he was in also in the Thornbirds, which was another yes, big one. Yes, I remember that from, well from around that time. Rachel uh, Ward. Yes. yes. The um, of course the County of Monte Cristo. The original story, uh, Alexandre Dumas, who wrote the, the also the Three Musketeers. Um, uh, you know, very popular story. It was initially serialized, which is why the story. If you try <laughs> try to follow the plot of the actual book. And it's labyrinthine to you right. know the movies all really pair it back to the basic revenge story, but there's all this stuff involving, you know, other allies and Napoleonic uh, alliances and an offspring of offspring, and uh, it's you know it's it's a real tangled web, and uh, it's it's one of those ones where maybe the movie might be an improvement in a lot of cases. Yeah, well, it's fun, and I mean, I found it on YouTube, so there's that. It's, yeah. it doesn't look great, but it's it's there, and it's yeah, it's a fun one. But now. Uh, I should mention the original, well, not the original, but sort of the oldest sort of classic Hollywood version, 1934. If you're listening and uh, before March 19th, 2018, uh, it, it's Monday, March 19th. It's, um, it's actually going to be on TCM. Oh, awesome. And it's interesting in that it, it, it was directed by um, a very reliable Hollywood director, uh, is it Roland Howard, I think? Um he he, uh, I know Son of Frankenstein is one of his other great triumphs, but uh, it's it stars uh, Robert Donat, who is a um, you know a handsome matinee idol of the time. British actor was also in the Thirty Nine Steps. Hitchcock was a big uh, big um, fan of his uh, and wanted to use him in more films, but for whatever reason, um, there was always conflicts or illness involved. But uh, his nephews, two of his nephews, actually live here in Nova Scotia. Oh, so, that's interesting. Uh, Halifax actor Richard Donat is. Um, uh, is based here, and uh, his brother Peter Donat uh, is also, I think, in these parts. But uh, they grew up in the valley. I guess uh, Robert Donat's brother moved to Canada at some point. So, Steve, Stephen, you, you vague Nova Scotia connection. You always know the connections to the local, <laughs> the local connections. I appreciate that because well, I never know them. <laughs> I remember actually, you know, talking to Richard Donat and just it's like just asking, like out of the blue, you aren't by any chance related to Robert Donat, who was in the Thirty Nine Steps. He's like, you know, kind of taken aback because he figured no one would know that. But, um, <laughs> That's cool. Well, speaking of, of classics, you also suggest yes. we watch The Big Heat from 1953. This is Fritz Lang's film. Uh, of course, Fritz Lang at that point had moved from Germany to Hollywood and was making films there. And uh, this was one I hadn't seen. It's a classic noir, uh, a noir revenge story. Uh, Dave Banyan, who's Glenn Ford, he is this clean cop in a dirty world. And, he's, and it's funny how all his domestic stuff. He, he lives in this sort of lovely suburban home with his perfect 1950s wife, played by Jocelyn Brando, uh, Marlon's sister, and uh, and daughter. And they, they have this complete with this sort of jangly, sweet score. It's almost very, it's almost like a sitcom, how perfect their world is. But every time he steps out of the front door, he slips into this world of like, you know, dirt and crime and corruption. He basically... He's been working – this is the thing about the movie which I thought was kind of funny. He's been working in the police station – police doing police work there for 10 years. And he's just now figuring out that his – his his um, the police force is totally corrupt. And it's com- <laughs> the whole town yes. is run by this one guy who is basically – he knows everything. And it's a – and it all leads back to him, this, uh, this guy. And, and somehow an impossibly young gangster played by Lee Marvin and an impossibly glamorous and hilarious gangster's mall played by Gloria Graham are involved. And boy, whenever they're on screen, I absolutely oh, yeah. love them. They're, they're, they're the so highlight of the film. Fun. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I like the movie. Uh, I, I, on we're the, back in Chicago too. We should yeah, yeah, yeah. Another 
Gritty Chicago. Um, I like the movie, and I certainly like the way the plot played out because it was full of surprise and uncertainty, and uh, Glory Graham's character is just really impressive. Uh, and I would, I would absolutely recommend it, though. I don't know if I loved it quite as much as, say, Martin Scorsese and Michael Mann loved it. Or and, me. <laughs> I love this film. And they, they, they speak on the, uh, on the DVD I have. Uh, I have like, I was able to, I was like, oh, that's delightful that we decided to watch this because I have it on like a noir collection and it's one of the movies in there I hadn't seen. Um, in my library, but uh, but yeah, they, there's there's testimonials from uh, Scorsese and Mann, and they just go on and on about how it, this film really inspired their work. And uh, yeah, I was like, all right, that's 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 cool. Well, I, I think in terms of, of Ford being kind of up to this point, maybe was kind of the stand-up guy. He's in a lot of westerns, and you know, he's a guy of principles who you know can't be bought or can't you know you know isn't going to waver from whatever it is that he believes in, and and. He, but here he really gets pushed over the edge uh, to the point of, you know, just almost sadism, really. <laughs> um, and, uh, I mean, he still kind of believes in what he believes in, and he's very determined and won't stop until he gets um, the guys that are, uh, you know, running the town and have responsible for the death of his wife. Um, but uh, there's a darkness to this film that even a lot of other noirs would kind of back away from. Say, whoa, yeah. buddy, I think you've had enough. Uh, this this film really goes for it in a way that, uh, uh, you know, even even other dark film noirs wouldn't necessarily go for. I mean, the, the, it's, it's probably, I mean, the most famous thing in this film is probably when Lee Marvin throws a hot pot of coffee in, in Gloria Graham's face. And I, I, had, I have to imagine that at the time this film came out, people must have been, Completely taken aback by that. Like, yeah, they, it's they, pretty. It's you, pretty intense. I don't think they'd awful. seen anything like that in a film before. Yeah, um, that savage and and you know just it just drives the point, drives home the point of how psycho this guy really is. And, yeah, and why he's a force to be reckoned with. And then you know to watch him, you know, and then it's deeply satisfying to see uh, Glenn Ford take him down. Right, uh, and, and actually Gloria Graham kind of taking him down too. That's there, true. There yes, is, there is a, a tit for tat moment uh, later in the film, which is which is very satisfying. Uh, again, this re- vengeance uh, uh, thriller genre really delivering on on these kinds of levels, you know. And I I have to say, like I found it, and I find a lot of these films in a in a uh, very satisfying when they're well made. It, there is a certain something about watching this stuff happen on screen. This kind of biblical kind of vengeance go on and go. Okay, right, right. That's what that might be like. Yeah, and I think. Uh this is probably like the template for the, you know, turning your badge kind of thing. You know, like the class, you know, later, you know, a decade later, we see Dirty Harry toss his badge on the commissioner's yeah, desk or whatever. Yeah, for sure. He's, yeah, they throw it away they, at the end of the first you know, movie. They, they go rogue or whatever. And uh, and uh, in this case, uh, but he gets to keep his gun because he, he makes a point about the fact, you know, turning your badge and your gun. It's like, ah, this is, I bought this gun. Yeah, <laughs> this, this is, mine. is mine. Yeah, yeah. You right. know, and clearly he's going to use it yeah. at some point. And, um, you know, and, and then a lot of the corrupt officials turn out to be completely ineffectual, spineless jellyfish. And mm-hmm. um, you know, and I, I think uh, I, I mean Fritz Lang escaped Nazi Germany to make films like this. I, I don't know if he's making a point of of, of comparing you know uh, crime and corruption with the, the infiltration of of the the National Socialist Party in Germany into places of authority. I, I feel like maybe there's an element of that where people would just went along to get along kind of thing. And in this case, it's corruption instead of uh, Nazism. But, um, you know, because of that, I think uh, Fritz Lang's work almost always has that dark undercurrent that just, 
seems to seep into the into the inner workings of his films yeah. uh, more so than other filmmakers of his ilk. Whether he's you know he made westerns as well and uh, you know spy thrillers and and uh, sort of period adventure films, but every one of them has has this you know raking the bottom of humanity yeah, <laughs> element sure. to them. Sure, and I mean of course noir has a lot of that that sort of like morally. Uh, dubious uh, vibe to it, um, you know. And speaking of European f- filmmakers going to make a movie, movies in Hollywood, I also watched. I revisited Leon the Professional, which I think was Luc Besson's first film in the United States. And yes, it feels very much like a French movie in a lot of respects. Like he he uses accordion on the soundtrack, which seems very strange. And of course, he uses. Um, uh, Jean Reno as his leading man, uh, who is apparently supposed to be playing Italian in this opposite Danny Aiello, <laughs> yeah, but well. but yeah, I don't know about that. <clears throat> anyway, um, this is a really strange movie to watch. Uh, it's strange for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is is Natalie Portman, who is at age thirteen gives an accomplished performance in the film. Of course, there were two versions of this film. There was the professional in that opened in in North America that had a lot of their sort of relationship stuff cut out because it was themed so it seemed a little bit too questionable and then there's a european version which has a lot of that stuff left in of course now you get leon the professional on dvd which has it all yeah. there you can check it, it out version integral yeah something like that uh you know and i um it's a peculiar and maybe problematic relationship sure but uh but uh i mean i think what's really most problematic is how much she wants vengeance because her family have been killed by Academy Award winner uh, <laughs> Gary Oldman, uh, and uh, and you know, and she basically he basically teaches her how to kill and how to handle weaponry, and she's just basically a kid, and uh, I think that's where the tension comes from. Mostly, it's that like this innocent who has been has had her innocence taken away, and now she wants satisfaction, and eventually, she and uh, with the help of her her personal hitman, they get it. Yeah, the uh, the film certainly caused a splash at the time it came out, and um, you know, even even with the uh, the cut North American version, some people got a weird vibe from the friendship between uh, Leon and uh, Natalie Portman's character, the young the young girl, and uh, I I didn't see it so much. I don't think there were any hints of romance or anything like that. No. It, no. But you know the the subtext may have been there. You know, I I, I saw more of a of him as, as kind of father figure. Kind of thing, yeah, or older brother or something, yeah, something like, like he, something he's, along he's those ca- lines. He's very, he's he's not, he's very, he's not a, a very complex character. He's very sort of, you know, he has he has a, his own code. I think is is, and he'll never cross that. And you know, but at the same time, he does teach her how to kill. So there it is. <laughs> yes. um, one other movie I wanted to mention before we move on to our next segment is Blue Ruin, yes. uh, Jeremy Saulnier's film. film, and it's I think it's still on Netflix here in Canada. And uh, Saulnier writes, directs, and shoots this lean and suspenseful revenge thriller with a powerful central performance by Macon Blair. It's about a guy who's basically been living rough in a car on a beach somewhere, uh, and he discovers that uh, a, a man from his past has been released from prison, and he is gripped with a sense of pur- purpose, and he goes and he, he he kills the man responsible for the death of of 
this guy's parents. And uh, But what happens with the film, the rest of the film, I mean, that's all in the first act. Uh, the rest of the film is him coming to terms with what he's done and realizing that violence begets violence and anger begets anger. And uh, the rest of the film is how that he tries to, to damp, tampen that down and, and control it, but he can't. And and he's kind of, he doesn't necessarily regret what he's done, but he realizes that every action has consequences. And, and at the end, you sort of, it all it seems it 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 gives you a, a real layer of tragedy in this film. I mean, it's a terrific movie, but it's 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 tragic a lot more so than some of these other movies, these revenge dramas where it's all about you know uh, satisfaction. There, I don't think there's any satisfaction to be had in the in this story. No, no. Uh, I mean, Solny is an amazing filmmaker. I can't wait to see what he does next. Uh, the green the green room was uh, yeah unbelievable was, was astounding and and. Uh, yeah, you you don't expect you, you think it's just gonna be a standard revenge tale or whatever, and and uh, and then it just takes you in this whole other journey, um, you know, where you get to the flip side of it, and you you know you wonder. Uh, very few of these films recommend turning the other cheek, which is <laughs> yeah, um, but this one almost does. Yeah, it almost does, and uh, and of course there's lots of quirky characters scattered throughout. Uh, you know, I, I like that it, it's kind of off balance point of view kind of keeps you on your toes through the whole film and and, and I think that's the that's the real uh, beauty of this film and that you you don't really know where it's going to go once you know it reaches the point where you think it's going to go and then it goes way beyond that and that's uh, that's a real unexpected treasure well uh, earlier we mentioned about how a lot of these uh, revenge thrillers are built on uh, overblown machismo and that uh that the, the women don't have a lot of agency and you know, the men have to protect them and or get revenge for their abuse and or death. Um, but but there are certainly a number of films where uh, women get to take matters into their own hands and, uh, you know, get the final uh, comeuppance themselves. And uh, obviously, the, probably the, the first one that will come to mind is, is probably Kill Bill, sure. um, the Tarantino film uh, with uh, Uma Thurman. Um and uh, it certainly has a lot of progenitors. In fact, I think I think the films that we're about to talk about, I think there are all influences on that particular double double feature film uh, yeah. as it eventually came out. Yeah. Um, and the film that uh, I'm going to start with is uh, called uh, originally called Thriller: A Cruel Picture. Um, was the title of the original Swedish release uh, released in North America to Grindhouse Cinemas as they call her One Eye? Um, <laughs> That's a great change which, of title, which is actually a pretty pretty catchy title. Yeah, though it does feel a little bit like a western or something. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it definitely you know my name is nobody. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they call sure. me Trinity. Obviously, those are the kind of the inspirations. But it is not a western. It is a northern um, set in chilly climes of of Sweden, and uh, it's. It's kind of, um, in fact, if, if you go on Google image search and look up the poster for the American version, they call her One Eye, you'll notice a very familiar font uh, used, a very catchy, very 70s um, kind of font on the poster that will look very familiar because uh, a big fan of this picture, uh, Jason Eisner, borrowed it for Hobo with a Shotgun. So there you there, go. Uh, there's a very similar thing happening there. Um, but in, in this film, uh, we have... Uh, Christina Lindeberg, who uh, you know has a mostly kind of fairly nondescript Swedish softcore sex films it was kind of her purview. But uh, this film kind of came out of that environment, and uh, and she was assigned to to play a woman who uh, is is she's a mute woman um, because of a, an incident when she was a child, where she was uh, attacked by a an old and and um, 
rather, uh, I guess, mentally deficient uh, character in her village, uh, and and she'd been mute ever since. And then that uh, someone takes advantage of that, kidnaps her, gets her hooked on heroin, and turns her into a prostitute. And uh, it, it kind of goes downhill from there. So uh, at, at any rate, she's eventually able to escape and uh, get revenge on those who wronged her. So it's 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 very low budget. It's it's kind of low key in a lot of it. But th- there's also like hardcore sex inserts, which is very weird. Which is very weird to see when you're not expecting it in a, in a feature film. But that was kind of the market it came out of and was intended for, especially on, on the grindhouse circuit. I'm sure it was cut up in uh, very different ways for uh, for use. But Lindbergh is is, um, is a real presence in this film, uh, and it's a shame she didn't make more films. Uh, she's she's very stoic, and she goes. I mean, she's kind of. I guess like a female Charles Bronson, and she kind of goes about the business of acquiring weaponry and and uh, extracting her revenge. She learns about her fast cars. And, yeah, and uh, she really she she starts to pick up everything she needs for this bloodbath that is the to come. Showtime. And when it finally comes, it's uh, it's something like it. It has that grittiness to it, which I associate with. I think I mentioned Mad Max, uh, that kind of like super low budget exploitation drama. Yeah, it's it's not fussy filmmaking in, in any way, shape, or form. And I, I see that Lindbergh is actually uh, she was kind of she kind of after a while dropped out of film business, probably for obvious reasons. But she's actually in a new film uh, about a, a pair of sisters that get mesmerized by a magical uh, vinyl LP that is coming out it's called Black Circle. Black Circle. So <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to that if that ever uh, gets over to this side of the pond. But um, uh, Thriller, a cruel picture slash uh, they call her one eye is not for the faint-hearted. But it yeah. is—it is an interesting. I mean, it was a huge hit again on on that circuit in the 1970s, and it uh, is definitely one of the standout films from that whole 70s grindhouse exploitation yeah. era. That 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 uh, isn't something you'd forget soon. Now, the version that I found was dubbed into English, so I mean, you know, uh, that's probably not a surprise either. Uh, I did. I think the scene I enjoyed the most. I mean, this is a film full of scenes that make you wince, but uh, the one I enjoyed the most is is a character, and I won't give too much away ties up another character by rope uh, and drags them behind a horse. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, and now... um, Lots of memorable moments. Yeah. But that leads to another film, uh, an Abel Ferrara film that I'm sure was also a an influence on uh, on Kill Bill. And, yeah. And, but it's a standout film in its own right. Yeah, that's Ms. 45 from 1980. I found this on YouTube as well. And uh, it's about a woman uh, named, uh, well, the actor's name is Zoe Tamerlis Lund, who I guess died pretty young. Uh, she was a, uh, she had, a, had some uh, addictive addiction issues, um, but uh, from what I read about her, but uh, anyway, her character works in the New York fashion industry, and she's rendered mute, again, that sort of theme, um, when she is uh, assaulted twice in one day. Uh, now she uh, it's uh, she sort of uh, then decides, well, I'm going to wear some of this high fashion. I'm going to walk the streets, and when men approach me or mac on me, I am going to kill them. And uh, yeah, and well, the second guy who attacked her, she was able to get his gun and uh, and beat the crap out of him so um yeah that is kind of how it goes and and it's funny her transformation from sort of mild-mannered 
fashion uh, uh, worker, um, you know, seamstress, I guess, so you want to use that term from the day, uh, to this, like, character. I mean, it's very 1980, but it's very much like that look of the slick back hair. I was reminded of that Robert Palmer video <laughs> for Addicted to Love with the red uh, heavy eye makeup and the red lips and the slick back hair. And she's basically approached by many bad people, and she uh, she really takes it to them. Um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a solid low-budget thriller. I would say it shows the kind of chops that uh, Ferrara would uh, again exhibit in movies like Kings of New York and Bad Lieutenants. It's uh, it's something to seek out. And again, like I said, it's on YouTube. So so there's that. Um, and then there's The Brave One, which is from 2007, starring Jodie Foster, very much in the kind of death wish model of someone who is uh, is attacked and uh, she and her her fiance are attacked and the fiance dies and she has to recover from this terrible physical trauma and emotional trauma and then finds her way out onto the streets and sort of tries to to make a difference with a with her gun and um you know it's very of course it's very different in this case partly because i think neil jordan is a very different kind of filmmaker yes um but also because the the emotional impact of what this this did to her this losing her partner and and having this incredible trauma happen to her but also what is happening to her when she goes out and seeks out people on the streets and kills them uh, that is it's very deep and she talks continually talks about how she's not the same person how she's become a stranger and uh, it really is a it's a sort of depiction of of, uh, of major trauma in a way that I think a lot of these films don't show because we really get her internal life. We get a lot of voiceover as uh, Jodie Foster. And of course, Jodie Foster can deliver pain in a very plausible sort of way. And she winds up having an interesting friendship with Terrence Howard, who was the investigating detective on these cases. Uh, and, you know, it's a bit implausible that it would take him so long to figure it out. Mm-hmm. But but at the same time, uh, it makes for this interesting dynamic. Anyway, I, I was quite impressed with The Brave One. I remember the the reviews weren't so great when it came out, but but having seen it with all these other movies, I felt like it was showing us something that we weren't seeing on in these other films. Yeah, reviews were mixed at the time, and of course everyone made the comparisons between this film and Death Wish. But yeah. of course the remake hadn't come out, and uh, this film probably looks a lot better by comparison it really does, all these yeah. years later. And, yeah. uh, you know, the, the physicality of Jodie Foster, which you don't always get to see, but you think of a film like Panic Room where she's fantastic in a room that's very physical, in a, in a role that's very physical and very demanding in that way. And this film has some of that aspect of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you remember her in Silence of the Lambs that yes, uh, constantly being shot with other men, with men, and then, you know, being dwarfed by them because she's she's quite tiny. And, of course, I was reminded that when the Oscars were on the other night because she was standing next to Jennifer Lawrence, who was a foot and a half taller <laughs> than her, and it was just, it was really startling. So, right, she's she's yeah. a, uh, she's very petite. Didn't help that she was on crutches. No, that's <laughs> right. Time either. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think I think the Brave One is worth seeing in this genre for sure. Now, uh, now you also watched Lady Vengeance, a film <laughs> I've never seen, but I know, I know of certainly as part of the trilogy of sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Old Boy. So, yeah, it's it's the last film in the trilogy, and uh, I mean it's a loosely a tri- it's loosely a trilogy in that the films are sort of thematically connected, but they're not. You don't have to see one to enjoy the others. Uh, in fact, Old Boy was the middle film of the trilogy, and it's the one that got the most attention, you know, uh, outside of Korea. Um, but. Uh, but Park Chan Wook, uh, you know, was able to kind of parlay this into a, into a bigger career, and uh, 
you know, the, the, all three films have had pretty widespread distribution as a result, uh, certainly on home video. And they're all worth seeing uh, for this mix of, of highly stylized filmmaking, like just virtuosic, uh, almost operatic kind of filmmaking with lots of uh, baroque camera movements and strange sure. angles and and dissolves and sur- and you know high dose of surrealism you think of the octopus and you know in, in old boy is, yeah. is, is an image that will stick with me forever yeah i saw i saw old boy at the oxford and yeah, me too. <laughs> it's the only one of these that i had seen in cinemas and uh, i remember the camera work and and those like panning shots of the fight scene in a hallway where the camera is like in this impossible angle where it's sort of stuck in the wall and moving along as the fight scene continues and that was just I mean it was yeah that was really something like a, the, clearly a very gifted filmmaker but I, I really want to catch up with these other ones well here we have uh, Lee Yung A as uh, Lady Vengeance of the title and uh, basically she's a, she gets uh, sent to jail as a, as a teenager for the kidnapping and murder of a young boy, which she didn't, in fact, commit. However, uh, the actual kidnapper threatens to uh, kill her own uh, one-year-old daughter if she doesn't uh, take the rap for this uh, kidnapping. And the kidnapper, turns out, was her old school teacher who uh, had committed a string of these child kidnapping and murders at different schools um, and uh, and basically has gotten away with it because he's very clever, doesn't pick kids in his own class, and... You know, and you get you get a lot of the standard kind of serial killer tropes of, you know, the, the, they find a bunch of the tapes of some of the murders and all this kind of stuff. But uh, so she she gets sent away for for several years, and 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 while she's in prison, of course, she starts to formulate her plan of how right. she's kind of very much like Count of Monte Cristo has a good what twenty years on the rock uh, there, right? Yeah, to, it was fifteen, uh, I think, something yeah, like something that. like that. Yeah. Um, so she comes up with this very elaborate plan to you know to be as nice as pie in jail and be, get the, uh, the model prisoner, uh, kind of, uh, treatment. And then once she's out, start to, to, uh, use, use the skills and know-how of fellow prisoners that she befriended while behind bars to, uh, to get the skills that she needs to get her ultimate revenge on this, uh, this guy who, uh, used and betrayed her over the course of the film. So, um, you know, it's a lot of again, like like the brave one. It's all about like learning about weapons, getting the right. smarts um, to get the get the upper hand. But uh, but here, and, and unlike the like the Death Wish type films, like the joy of this film is the plan that she has, right? And watching it unspool, and um, and uh, it wraps up in a, in a kind of a very satisfactory way where she gets the families of the other murdered children involved. Uh, and I don't want to say a whole lot more beyond that, but but it's. You know, it, it builds into this kind of community service kind of thing, and there's a, there's a lot of dark humor in this film, and uh, and some great performances, um, and it, you know, it just has a completely different sensibility, of course, coming from Korea. That the, there's a there's a a mix of violence and, and dark humor that pervades a lot of their uh, commercial filmmaking that uh, is, is is really appealing, sure. in, in, and uh, even in just sort of flat out action films. There's always a a knack for just character twists and and uh, and and just this graveyard humor that that uh, you know seems to have fallen out of favor over here. Now, before we pressed record this this afternoon when we were talking about that, you mentioned another film that might have been influential on this, Lady Snowblood. Oh or yes, something? there's, there's um, I don't know this one at all. It's a Japanese sort of female samurai film, Lady Snowblood, and then Lady Snowblood Two, which I think has 
Search for Vengeance or something like that, right in the, right <laughs> right. In the, right in the title. Right. And, uh, Going back to the 70s. Yeah, again, uh, and that, that's easily attainable on uh, on uh, DVD at any rate. And uh, also, you know, also a huge kind of Kill Bill template. I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, typical Tarantino. Everything's pretty much borrowed from somewhere else. And I feel like we've, in the last, this segment, we've touched on pretty much everything that he borrowed from <laughs> in one way or another. But we didn't mention any Pam Greer movies. I'm sure there's some revenge ones in there somewhere. I think Coffee actually is a there you revenge go. film um, with the great Pam Greer worth tracking down. But, um, you know, certainly it, it, it seems like if, if you, you would rather f- see one of these with a, with a female protagonist uh, coming out on top, then, then there's certainly uh, some in this batch to choose from. <laughs> Wraps up our look at films about a dish best served cold, but preferably with some hot lead. Uh, revenge films, past and present, and good and terrible. My name is Stephen Cook, and you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And you can find me on Twitter uh, with my blog uh, title, which is Flaw in the Iris. And if you've enjoyed the show or have enjoyed past shows, you can always lend us a bit of support at our Patreon. And you can uh, also leave us a note on the Facebook group uh, for Lends Me Your Ears. Thanks for that. And also thanks to the folks at the Village Soundcast Network who put all the delightful finishing touches on the show. And of course, CKDU 88.1 FM for the use of their production studios and airing us every other Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next time. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.